Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. So what people don't realize often is that, quote unquote, the social network that exists today could have looked completely different depending on different algorithmic choices made by these platforms. The fact is, there's no rule against causing social harm at the moment. Like there's, there's no, you're not violating a law just because you're depressing people at scale. There's nothing illegal about it. When you leave a public square in private hands, you're asking for trouble. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Trium Connects. My guest for this episode is Vasant Dar. Vasant and I have a conversation about why and how social media platforms should be regulated and how we would go about doing so if that's what we agreed on. Vasant argues that we essentially have a situation where there are no rules of the game at present when it comes to holding platforms responsible for their contribution to social ills, mostly through the amplification of messages. This, according to Vasant, not only leads to some truly egregious gaps in our ability to avoid negative outcomes, but also to hold those responsible liable for their actions. Vasant argues that, for example, in our current setting, a social platform could be shown to be responsible for tens of thousands of cases of depression and perhaps hundreds of suicides, but still have not violated any single rule or law and thus be completely free of liability. Vasant brings more than 30 years of study and research in this area to the table. He is a professor at the Stern School of Business and the Center for Data Science, both at New York University. He's the former editor-in-chief of the journal Big Data and the founder of SCT Capital, one of the first machine learning-based hedge funds in New York City in the 90s. His research focuses on building scalable decision-making systems from large sources of data using techniques and principles from the disciplines of AI and machine learning. Last but not least, Vasant is the host of a podcast called Brave New World, which is produced by the Data Governance Network. It's a fantastic podcast, and I'd really recommend everybody check it out. And now, without any further ado, here is my discussion with Vasant Dar. Vasantar, welcome to Trium Connects. Thank you, Matt. Delighted to be on your uh, pod. It's wonderful to have you here. And, and I must say, I'm going to give a plug because I think that your own podcast is amazing. Brave New World. It's, it's, uh, you're the host. It's produced by the Data Governance Network, as I understand. And, and I want to just say congratulations, first of all, on, on such a great show. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what areas you focus on in your own podcast. Well, firstly, thank you, Matt, for bringing that up. I'm actually really pleased with how it's been uh, going. And, you know, what motivated me, like um, a lot of other things these days, was what I saw as a, a sort of a basic transformation that was being caused by COVID. You know, you, you, know, you could see the virtualization sort of happening in real time and, and a changing of norms. And, you know, it reminded me, weirdly enough, of this book by Isaac Asimov called The Naked Sun, where there's a, a colony of Earth people who've settled there and they have no contact. It's all virtual. And the only few times they meet, which is, you know, major council meetings or to, you know, or to mate or, or things like that, 
you know, those are the exceptions. And, and when they do meet, they maintain a distance of, uh, yeah, six feet. This was written by Asimov in 1957. So, you know, the similarities were striking. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it made me think about, you know, the future world that, or the world that our future selves would like to inhabit. And I thought that, you know, getting some conversations in that area would be a good idea. And, and the canvas is quite broad, as you might have noticed. You know, I've had a very different, diverse set of guests, you know, ranging from computer scientists to philosophers to psychologists and sociologists and uh, journalists, economists, you know, all talking about uh, the brave new world that's unfolding quite rapidly uh, before us. Yeah, and, uh, and um, I love the title because it's one of my favorite novels. Again, very prescient, I think, and raised a lot of issues that are uh... That, uh, that, that we're addressing today. And, and it's one of these things that you can't believe how long ago it was actually written. Yeah, indeed. In fact, I watched some interviews of Huxley. You know, there was one with uh, Mike Wallace, you know, did an interview with him in 1958, which is really interesting. You know, and Huxley was talking about, you know, uh, and, and at that point he was talking about sort of um, the machinery that was you know, in, in at that time, advertising and Wall Street and how you could, you know, sway opinions, you know, through this slick advertising machine. And so his, his concern was that people would just get sort of railroaded in a certain direction without their being conscious of it. So, I, you know, it was an interesting interview. Um, and I have to say, you know, Brave New World was one of my favorite books as well. You know, I went to a hardcore engineering school and this was one of the few non-engineering books that was assigned, you know, Brave New World and Death of a Salesman, which was also amazing. What an interesting combo for a bunch of engineering students to have. That's yeah. good. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about what Huxley would think about uh, now. If he was worried about it then, I wonder, you know, he, he would, I think, be terrified perhaps at this point. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to, to think about you know, uh, big thinkers or visionaries from the past, uh, you know, who've made, um, uh, you know, pronouncements or predictions about technology and AI and what would, what they would think about the world now. You know, one of my own mentors, Simon was, you know, was one of the sort of fathers of AI and he was very optimistic and he's the reason I got into AI. Uh, he was very optimistic and he made these bold predictions, one in 1965, where he said, you know, in the next 20 years, a lot of intelligence will have been solved uh, you know, but as is often the case, these things take longer than you think, you know, but I wonder what he would think about the world that's unfolding right now in front of us, you know. Uh, yeah, it's always interesting to go back and ask yourself that, you know, what would they think? Absolutely. And and like you said, it often takes longer until it doesn't. So it's slow, 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 and then it goes so fast that you almost miss it. Um, so look, uh, we could talk about uh, what great thinkers would think about uh, now. Uh, that would be that's a that's a wonderful uh, kind of uh, pub discussion here in the UK. Uh, I want to I want to get to our, our main topic because I want to take advantage of, of the time I have with you because you are absolutely one of the most thoughtful people I know, thinking and writing in the space about the impacts of social media on society and when and how it should be regulated and how we should think about it. Um, and I want to kind of start to try to turn our conversation to that because I, I, I just think that you have so many interesting things to say about that. Uh, to, to set that up discussion, though, I, I want to try to 
frame it uh, along a very kind of tired framework. And I know that you have written that that it's uh, not particularly useful sometimes to think about it this way. But I, I want to think of to start as a basic looking at social platforms as two different kinds of things. One would be kind of a bulletin board and one would be as a publisher. And I know that you come up with a, a, a newer concept and I think a much more apt concept called an amplifier, but maybe we know we can talk about this idea of social platforms as amplifiers once we get the framework of, of how other people have, have talked about this a lot. Now, the first is to see um, kind of the uh, social media platforms as, as kind of like bulletin boards. Um, and in the simplest kind of way, you know, this is, you see that you see them as simply a place for people to post their own thoughts and feelings and pictures and things like this. And in this narrative, all the good, bad and ugly of the community or society is simply reflected on the content on the board and it's not created by it. So it's just a kind of a passive place where other people provide the content. And as such, any restrictions on that board about what can be said and who can say it is a free speech issue. So, so in, in essence, what you're doing there, the target of the regulation is the people's speech acts themselves. It's not the board. The board is just a kind of passive reciprocal or a, a, a receptacle of, of their talk. Now that's on one kind of extreme. And often, at least in the past, that's what the platforms themselves, that's the narrative that they put forward. On the other side is the kind of maybe one end of the distribution that we can think about is, is them as publishers. So this is often favored by people who want additional regulation on these platforms. So the platforms are classified as a kind of publisher, and this would make them liable both legally and morally for what they publish. So in that kind of narrative, you can think of it as almost like a newspaper or a publication that uses kind of stringers. So people who don't really work for the newspaper, but that they kind of provide content for the newspaper. And even though they're outside people, the publisher is still legally responsible if they publish that content, even if it comes from a, from a third party. Now, those are kind of two ends of the extreme, but what you write about is when you talk about potential regulation of social media, you talk about social platforms, not as bulletin boards, and not as publishers, but more as amplifiers. And I just wanted to know, can you tell us a little bit about how it's different from either the bulletin board or the, or the broadcaster or publisher kind of model? And why is the distinction important? So that's a, that's a great question and a big one. And you know, I, I think I should start by saying that when you leave a public square in private hands, you're asking for trouble. And that's what a lot of these platforms have become. So I, I think we need a little bit of context here. And that is, you know, we, we need a little bit of history, you know, as Bob Marley says, you know, if you know your history, then you'll know where you're coming from. So the history in, in two sentences is, you know, we had web 1.0, which was, you know, peer to peer, everyone's, you know, free to publish, but it wasn't very useful. And then we created web 2.0, which is sort of what we have now. But we forgot to define some basic rules or norms around how people would function in Web 2.0. And what I mean by rules is just you know, basic things like you know, who owns the data or what are people's data rights? And you know, will you be neutral? And you know, just things like that. And at that time, these emerging 
tech companies were small. They were, you know, they seemed nice. You know, they were going to do no evil. You know, they seemed like young people, you know, that we could sort of trust with building this wonderful next generation of the internet. And things haven't sort of worked out that way and we should not be surprised. So even when you ask yourself, you know, a basic question like, you know, Facebook's mission statement, which was, you know, to connect the world, you know, and, and make it a better place. I may have added the, the second one, but I, I can swear Zuckerberg always said that. We forgot to ask, like, how are you going to connect the world? You know, like, how, how is this going to happen? Because if there are, you know, 4 billion people on the planet, you know, maybe there's two to the four billion ways. I just made that up. But it's, there's a large number of possible ways to connect people. And not all of them will lead to the same kind of outcome. Right? So some ways of connecting people might be better than other ways of connecting people. But we forgot to ask that question about like, you know, and, and how is this actually going to happen? Like, how are we going to connect people? And, and will this all lead to sort of you know, a nice, touchy-feely, wonderful world, or, or you know, could things go wrong? Like, what are the risks? But in our enthusiasm, uh, and to be fair, it's hard to sort of predict the future when it comes to tech, right? It's very difficult, you know. So we can't blame ourselves too much for this. But the fact is that we forgot to ask ourselves, you know, what should the basic rules and norms be? So when you when you just, I'll just jump in there for a second. So when you say ways of connecting people, just so I get it straight in my own head. Does that mean how I'm, you know, under what conditions would I be connected to Joe in Atlanta? Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so you, yeah. So, you know, you remember the early days, right, of Facebook and people would say, hey, you know, I, I, I just met someone from high school, you know, from 30 years ago. And then there were stories about how it was leading to people getting together and connecting and all kinds of wonderful things happening, right? That was all happening organically. Right. We would go and say, oh, let me see if, you know, John Smith is on Facebook and oh, I'll send out a request. Right. So that was all organic. Right. That was humans essentially laying the groundwork. And then algos took over. Right. And alg algorithms took over because they said, oh, you know, if John Smith likes ice hockey. Then, you know, let's connect him to, you know, um, you know, Jane Doe over here who also likes ice hockey and they have these other things in common. So let's start connecting people and start creating the network, right? So what people don't realize often is that, quote unquote, the social network that exists today could have looked completely different depending on different algorithmic choices made by these platforms. And so that's something that we sort of sometimes lose sight of. We think, tend to think of the social network. Well, the social network didn't exist, right? It was created by these platforms. But we didn't ask that question. Nor would we ask the question about, well, okay, so now that you've created this network, what are the consequences of sending different kinds of content down the connections of this network, the rails of this network, right? And, you know, what kinds of information are you going to send down the rails? How often, you know, how will that affect people? And how will that affect their, their mental health, you know, their moods and all that kind of stuff? You know, but the, but the warning signs should have gone up in 2014, right? There was this paper published in 2014 that showed that you could influence people's moods at scale. You know, I mean, there was a study done of almost a million people on Facebook in a way they showed them certain messages and then they calculated what their mood was. And, and they found that you could actually manipulate people's moods based on messages you send them. And, you know, that kind of science demonstrated something really important. And that 
was then, I guess, leveraged by people to try and influence people. Now, I'm not, you know, it, it's hard to and, and sort of uh, come up with a smoking gun and say that, well, you know, you've, you know, the, the network or the social network has led to all of these ills. But the fact is that we need to acknowledge the, you know, the, the possibility that different ways of connecting people could lead to different kinds of outcomes, right? I mean, we could have ended up with a social network where we had a lot less polarization among people, right? Maybe people would be talking to each other in a more civil way if the social network looked somewhat different. But these are governance choices that were made by these platforms. And in retrospect, some of these governance choices could have been more responsible than they turned out to be. I was just going to pick up on that a little bit because it's interesting to me. I mean, my my understanding of this, and and please correct me because uh, you know almost infinitely more than I do on this. Um, but my understanding was that the the algorithms, as you say, that started connecting, they 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 didn't have a the structure of the network that emerged was a kind of an emergent property of a system that wasn't designed to create any specific type of network. That it was the algorithms were designed to. Uh, attract and retain attention, as I understood it. And then, and then what you say is you want attention, you want eyeballs on the screen. And so you then you put, you kind of say to some sort of AI, you say, uh, please maximize uh, the, the, the amount of attention. Um, and, and, and it's agnostic about how it creates then that, that network or, or how, it, how the, the content affects the people. Um, Actually, I, I, I want to correct that. It is not agnostic okay. about how it creates the network. The network is created in a way to maximize attention. Okay. Right? So not, not, not all networks will maximize attention equally. Right? Some will maximize, uh, you know, some will lead to greater attention than others. And so I would argue that the choices of algorithms and the way they connected people was also done with the objective of maximizing attention. Yeah, no, I completely, yeah. So I, I, I that, that's what I, I believe as well. It's the attention is the thing. So it's, it's the fight for the attention. And kind of in the same way that, you know, if you, I think of like sometimes in the New York Times or, or very kind of prestigious publications, they'll, they'll sometimes have a very long in-depth reported article on, let's say, how... I don't know, wetlands are regulated and it'll be a very long, complex story having to do with nitrate poisoning, whatever it might be. And almost no one reads it because it's long and boring. And so if, if, you, if you were kind of like trying to maximize the attention on a specific story in the New York Times, you would say, okay. And remember, you aren't talking about, it, you're agnostic as to the content that creates the attention. You just say, I want to maximize attention. Then you get a different story than if you're kind of, goal is to inform, let's say, voters about an important issue. Um, and so it seems like to me that, and, and tell me, it's like the system was blind, not blind in that it wasn't trying to maximize attention, it was blind, it didn't care how that attention was generated. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's, that's uh, I think that's completely accurate. It, it didn't really care about how the attention was maximized as long as they, it was, right? So the, the idea was to maximize engagement and, and do that uh, algorithmically, right? So you can algorithmically start connecting people 
start doing A-B tests. And remember, uh, you know, these, these uh, platforms do like tons of A-B testing, right? Uh, what works, what doesn't work, what, what generates emotion. Um, you know, and we've seen, by the way, uh, that, you know, with, with these papers being released and Francis Haugen, you know, that there were these concerns within Facebook as well, right? So this, this is not something that people you know, within the platform weren't aware of, right? I mean, there were sort of rumblings that, you know, maybe we should be rethinking uh, some of the things we're doing. Um, so it's not like they were unaware of, you know, some of the consequences of their choices either. Yeah, they started to see it. So how, do, how does this fit in with your idea of amplifier? So tell us a little bit more about that amplifier uh, idea. You know, my, my thinking really is that as long as a platform is passive, there is no amplification going on, right? People are just posting stuff, they're sharing stuff, and it's up to the platform to moderate the content. And it's it's sort of, you know, you refer to it as a free speech issue. It's actually, you know, since this is not a public thing, uh, you know, it doesn't really get into, you know, the, the, the idea of free speech is sort of, it's private, right? It, it's no different than going to a restaurant or, or a casino and, and conforming to the rules of the platform, right? So these are private spaces and they create the norms uh, and standards for what is considered appropriate content. So, you know, there, there always uh, is a need for some sort of content moderation because, you know, even if you allow people to just post stuff there, some people might just post stuff that is outrageous and offensive to a large part of your uh, user base. And so you're gonna have these sort of content moderation kinds of algorithms and people, you know, looking at the platform, just making sure that stuff there is kosher. Where it begins to get um, sort of murky is uh, exactly when they start making these choices of who to connect and what to start sending down the rails of the network, right? Now you're getting sort of the platform becoming active in terms of what it's actually doing, uh, both in terms of creating the network and sending content down the rails of the network. And there you start getting into potential issues of amplifying content, right? Because now you're saying, oh, this post looks like it's really gonna inflame a lot of people and generate engagement. I mean, I'm not saying that that's necessarily how it happens, but it certainly could, right? That you say, all right, you know, look, look like we'll get some real traction with this post. It's really inflammatory. And so it's actually in the best interest of the platform to promote it. Know, because it generates engagement, but it leads to adverse kind of outcomes. It might lead to violence. It might lead to you know brutality. You know some sort of an abuse, um, and it's sort of bringing out the worst in us. And there's no dearth of you know bad stuff in in humanity we've seen through through the through the centuries. So it's sort of encouraging that aspect and amplifying it. And that's what I'm bringing attention to. So if you're going to be passive, fine. You know you have the protections of you know, section 230, which we haven't really said much about, but in one sentence, it absolves you of any sort of legal liability for anything published on your platform, as, as you've mentioned. And so with that sort of blanket immunity, uh, platforms have felt, uh, you know, that they could do almost anything. Uh, and that's sort of what's led us into the place where we are, which is, you know, something doesn't seem quite right here. You know, that there's sort of lots of circumstantial evidence mounting that, uh, you know, that, that you know the platforms may actually cause some harm or they may cause you know even more harm in the future and that we should get our heads around it before it's too late right? before uh, you know so this is 
you know, what one could draw is sort of an analogy with the cigarette case, right? Cigarette companies denied for a long time that cigarettes had any sort of, you know, adverse effects, you know, until the evidence kept mounting decade after decade. And they say, all right, you know, fine, you know, let's, let's put labels on these boxes saying smoking will kill you, right? Yeah, there's an interesting distinction here, I think, because on one hand, as you said, and again, I, I don't, I think no one says that it's a conscious thing, but the algorithm might look at a certain type of message and say, whatever the structure of this message, it's going to cause attention. And it might be outrage, it might be, et cetera. Um, and and I, I can say, I can put my hands up and I, I've experienced this. I, I can say for in my own kind of political orientation, I lived kind of in terror for four years when Trump was a president. And I probably read more newspaper articles every day uh, than I have in my whole entire life. And to be honest with me, I can't say that it was just simply uh, uh, to keep myself informed. I would open up the paper every day and I'd be, oh my God, I can't believe he said this, or oh, I, I can't. And there was something that was drawing me there that was there was some sort of, I don't know whether it's a dopamine hit or something that, that it was completely addictive for me to do that. Now, was I gaining anything from that? If was I gaining any new information? Was I gaining any kind of more civic, I don't know, uh, uh, ability to act in a way that was uh, aligned in any kind of civic goal? No, it was just simply, I would look at the newspaper every day because it was outraging me. And that outrage is what drove me to the next, to the next thing. So one thing is, is that the algorithms can kind of like figure out what's going to get that repeat attention. But also I, I thought, and, and you've written about this, it's also once you start to get data on the individual, and this is where we get to the network effect, they can say, okay, given what this person individually has looked at in the past, right? Given where they go, where they live, who they're friends with, et cetera, et cetera. We know that this particular content is going to be particularly attention grabbing for them. And that, and then that cycle, that kind of iterative cycle starts to create this amplification that you were talking about. And, I, and that's why, that's how I took your argument, but it's these kind of two-sided one is the content and one is the profile of the target of the content is it, do I get that right? That's correct. Yes. So it, it, it is the content and the fact that you're channeling it in a specific way, right? That, that, that essentially makes you an amplifier. And, 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 and you know, and, and to, be, to be fair, certain kinds of amplification can be good, right? I mean, you can, you can amplify a social message, right? You can, you can you know, uh, so, so not all amplification is bad, right? So, but, but the fact is that when you do engage in amplification, then you're making some choices and, it, it, and, and you should and, and you're taking a risk and and in, in my view then you should be liable well right because now you're making choices on what you choose to amplify and you are becoming sort of more like a publisher at that point okay so again uh, this is so this gets to the point and I, and I, I'm going to read you your own quote which I, I think is a, a, again very eloquent and it makes this point and so you argue that amplification, once it has, that's what's responsible for a number of social ills from crime and violence, sexual abuse. You write really eloquently, I think, on the impact on teen depression, for example, uh, particularly on young girls. Um, and it's when it is responsible that we should regulate. So the quote here is, as long as the amplification doesn't exacerbate an existing uh, social pathology, such as teen depression, 
we can generally regard it as harmless. Okay, so there's where you're saying it doesn't, if it's not amplifying, but what it does, it should no longer be immune to legal action. Treating data amplification as equivalent to publishing would still provide platforms adequate protection. Passive platforms, and again, it's really interesting, you say like, like Snapchat, that don't amplify data would be immune, whereas those that amplify in a way that causes harm would be subject to investigation and litigation, for example, from some kind of class action suit of the parents of teenage girls uh, for causing them harm. So I to, get a, to get a real clear view, so what's different from, in this case, Snapchat and, and let's say an amplifying platform? So, so by the way, there's, there's several things that I want to sort of peel apart. So this uh, evidence of Joe Martin depression, you know, this has been sort of brought to light more by, you know, some of my colleagues, Jonathan Haidt has referred to it, and he actually maintains a database um, along with some other people, uh, you know, on this sort of circumstantial evidence. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that Snapchat is a great platform, <laughs> you know, without its own problems, because you know there's you know there's lots of evidence of cyberbullying and and things like that happening on on Snapchat as well, uh, you know. But that's different from amplification. But I want to come back to this issue of like not having the rules, you know, that we did that we that we forgot to define the rules, right? The fact is, there's no rule against causing social harm at the moment. Like there's, there's no, you're not violating a law just because you're depressing people at scale. There's nothing illegal about it, right? There's nothing wrong with it at the moment. There's no rule that says, you know, if you, you know, um, are depressing the teenagers in, in the society, there's something wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. We, we, we haven't set the rules yet. And, and this is what I keep coming back to. That's a bit frightening, isn't it? I mean, so, so we could say, Platform X, we can see there's there's strong evidence to say that you have caused depression in hundreds of thousands of teenagers, leading to thousands of suicides. It could be all proven true, and there would be nothing that you've no law that you violate. Exactly. Yeah, just think about that. Right? They have not violated any law. There's there's no law against that. And this is what I mean. We forgot to define some basic rules. Right? Now. I sometimes draw the analogy with financial services, which I have a fair bit of knowledge about. I've been sort of immersed in that space for a long time, uh, you know, since the 80s. And I've seen how financial institutions misbehaved as well, you know. Uh, and, and by the way, I'll, a, a little bit of a, um, a tangent I want to go on, which is, you know, I talked about the importance of understanding history, right? Big tech platforms went from being sort of the new kids on the block and the nice guys to now being, you know, what Aswat Damodaran calls the bullies, right? Yeah. So in the corporate life cycle, now they're the bullies in, in the space, right? You, you can't just tell them what to do, right? They've got 10 times the number of lawyers that the Department of Justice has, right? So you, <laughs> yeah. you better tread lightly, you know, when you come to big tech now, right? So they've amassed uh, great power. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is that, you know, I sometimes draw this analogy to financial services and banks became big bullies too. Like Wall Street was full of big bullies, right? And, and they behaved badly. And when, what does behave badly mean? Well, in financial services, there's a few basic things like, you know, you, you can't be manipulating markets. You can't be favoring some customers over others, let's say when it comes to trading and execution, right? There's basic things. And Everyone knows that the rules are well defined. The regulators know that, and so when the regulators come in and say, you know, we want to look at your records and and make sure that you're sort of not violating basic 
rules and standards and your fiduciary responsibilities to clients, banks have to open their books and, and records and say, here, look, look you know, we, we, we're complying with you know, the, the, the laws. There are no such laws in the social media space. We just forgot to define them, right? So we forgot to define the equivalent of, let's say, market manipulation, um, which might be social harm, right? That, that is, you know, you know, you said you want to connect the world. Well, can you promise us that you will do things that don't cause social harm? And if we want to come in and audit you because we're seeing evidence of social harm, will you actually open up your books and, and show us you know, who you were messaging and what you were doing so we can have some sort of transparency. I'm not talking about revealing IP or your secret sauce, but just more sort of operational transparency, you know, of the form that we see in, you know, in the financial space. You know, in, in one of my uh, pods with D David Yermak, um, you know, a few weeks ago, I, I started by saying, you know, the U.S. has the most trusted uh, financial system in the world. And he corrected me and he said, well, it's not the most trusted, it's the least untrusted, right? But at least <laughs> we have, you know, we, you know we, we've got these sort of basic rules uh, that we defined in finance and now regulators can come in and look for those. They know what they're looking for. Now, the means by which people manipulate markets might change as technology changes. The ways in which people might favor customers might change, right? So in the early, in, in, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it used to be soft dollar arrangements. Like we'll give you a break on your trading as long as you buy this research from us and you know, screw the client by, you know, in some way, right? That, that, that used to be really common on Wall Street. Like, um, and you know, we came in and, and defined rules that would prevent that kind of stuff. Nothing of the sort exists in social media. So we haven't even defined rules like, you know, don't cause social harm. So regulators have nothing to measure and what we're seeing is sort of this knee-jerk reaction that now seeing in these hearings. Yeah, and I, I love the analogy to the kind of financial markets because it highlights what's, as you said, the huge kind of hole that we have in the regulatory environment for social platforms. But it also highlights, I think, um, a fundamental challenge in this area that maybe the financial regulators don't have. So, so let, let me try to explain that. So in the financial regulatory space, even though it's difficult, I can probably tell that I've done some financial harm. There's kind of a scorecard that I can measure, okay, this cost X amount of dollars from these clients because they had only tertiary or, uh, you know, they had the third or fourth choice of, of the stock that they're going to look at. With social pathology, because it, any social pathology that you look at is going to have, you know, hugely complex causal mechanisms that contribute to it. Right, it's going to if 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 we take teenage depression just as because we've talked about it, you know the factors that are influencing the level of teenage depression in any given society are massive, right? So that there are huge complex issues how we measure uh, depression, uh, etc. So in many of the social pathology, I think sometimes not only is it hard to kind of measure the actual impact of any uh, particular causal element. But to disentangle what social pathology was amplified by this platform's amplification and what was amplified by other things going on in the society, it seems hugely challenging, particularly if it's part of a legal framework. Because if I have to, if I if I go, come after a platform and said you caused this social harm, they might say, okay, tell me what proportion 
of this harm are you claiming that I caused? Great, great, great points, right? So uh, what you're pointing to is a couple of things, which is defining the rules in the first place. And then how do you actually measure whether you're complying with the rules, which is even more complex than in the financial space, right? So th th those are two, two key challenges, right? So what I would argue is um, a couple of things, right? So firstly, I think that one of the reasons that regulation is effective in financial services is because it's a credible threat, right? The fact that you know that a regulator can come down and want to look at how you operate, right? Me, that solves 95% of the problem right there. Gotcha. Right? If, if you know that someone is going to come and look at how you operate, right? Then you're going to like think very carefully about how you operate, right? And make sure that you're not doing things that in retrospect will get you into trouble, right? You're going to think very carefully about how you do that. Just like, you know, when a bank approaches a, you know, let's say a, a, a broker approaches someone and wants to make a stock recommendation. Well, that stuff is recorded. It's recorded on the line, right? If a person makes misleading statements, you can go back there and sue them and say, look, you misrepresented the prospects of this company. You underrepresented the risks. I'm going to sue you, right? That stuff is recorded. Yeah. Like who you approach, what you say to them, right? Um, so the credible threat thing is, will solve a lot of the problem. Now, the, uh, the second thing you're talking about, which is, uh, you know, how do you actually measure this stuff? And you're right, it's easier in financial services because the kinds of things you're looking for, let's say market manipulation, whether you're favoring people might change, right? So in the nineties, you may have actually gone and looked at people's paper records, right? Um, and said, well, you know, show me what you did. Now you have access to electronic records, right? So in a sense, the regulators have to become more sophisticated themselves in terms of the tools that they use because they have access to more information. So even though they're looking for the same thing, the way they look for it might actually change as things evolve, right? So if you know that you're looking for social harm, let's say, like broadly speaking, right? You shouldn't be causing social harm. Well, what that means can actually change over time, right? It gives you that flexibility to, to define what that means because you don't know a priori what that's going to be, you know? And, and that's sort of just one of the aspects of technology. Uh, and in this case, by the way, it's technology and people, right? So one of the things we haven't actually talked about is how humans use this. And maybe there's something about our own psychology and our own needs and, and stuff like that, that sort of also brings out the worst in us, right? So, um, so, so the kinds of things you're looking for might actually change, uh, even though they're, they fall under the same broad umbrella of, you know, you should not be causing social harm, right? I think we can agree on that, you know, but what that means, you know, because it's very hard to prove that you're causing social harm, sort of generally speaking, it's impossible, right? That's like boiling the ocean. But if you sort of have evidence, sufficient circumstantial evidence that, you know, there's problems in terms of teen depression, you know, there's problems in terms of, you know, political polarization and, and anger that you're seeing expressed, right? That we're seeing these things. Maybe we ought to get to the bottom of this and look at the mechanisms that may be causing it. And so 
what I'm proposing is firstly the definition of the rules and the kinds of things we care about, which we don't have at the moment. And that would give regulators something to actually work with. At the moment, we've got nothing to work with. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, the first, if, if we if we kind of do it in stages, if we get at least some rules, then we can see that we can start to worry about how we measure them. I, I think the measurement problem is immensely complex, but let me, I mean, you were saying something about the financial system and, and I just want to see if I can bridge it to the, to the social platform. So in the past, let's say we were, I was a regulator and I thought that you were making, uh, that a bank was making uh, loan judgments based on uh, the ethnicity of the applicant. So there was some sort of uh, action brought against the bank for, for being engaged in kind of racial discriminatory factors. And even if it was institutionalized, um, that, that we could look at the, we could do an audit, we could look at it, we could look at the outcomes, et cetera. The data we would be looking at there would be, as you said, the recorded calls, the paper trails. We could even look at it electronically. We could see the, the probability of being um, given a loan, all things being equal across two identical candidates, except, everything's identical except their racial categorization. In the case of the social network um, or the social platform, I guess what we'd be doing is we would be kind of required to be able to see what's inside the algorithm. Would that be right? We'd have to, because there, be, there wouldn't be a person that was making that decision, it would be the algorithm. You don't need to see inside the algorithm, you need to see what the algorithm is doing. That is what I output. It's like, it's the same as let's say Joe Smith calls a client and proposes a stock. You just replace Joe Smith with an algorithm. And there's no difference. Okay. Um, in the case of, in the physical world, you know, the regulators can go in and say, look, I want to see who Joe Smith's been talking to, you know? Uh, and it's feasible to do that because, you know, we only have so much capacity. And so Joe Smith talks to 10 people. You can actually look at the records, right? The same thing can apply to algos. It's just how algos are doing it at scale, right? But there's no reason you can't say, well, you know, I'd like to see what, Algo X has been doing all this time. Right? How many people is it? Who, you know, who's it been sending messages out to? How many people? Right? The first thing is you can even at least start with the metadata, you know, which we don't even have yet. Right? You know, you know, how many messages do you send? Is this reasonable? You know, what, what are you what are you actually doing? What are the objectives of these algorithms? At the moment, we don't, we know nothing about that. So, so and that's what I'm proposing is not revealing the secret sauce or the inner workings of these algorithms. Like you can figure that out. Uh, based on your business objectives and what you're trying to do, I'm looking more for um, sort of more generally what these algorithms do, you know, what what their sort of quote unquote objective functions are, and then what are their outcomes, so that we can measure them. Uh, so, uh, so for example, you know, at the moment we have you know sufficient evidence that, you know, something started happening to. Uh, you know, teens around, you know, 2013, you know, I mean, we know that, you know, correlation doesn't prove causation, but, you know, there was a massive sudden, you know, gendered sort of, you know, deterioration, you know, not just in the US, but across the world, uh, you know, that started around 2013. So, you know, there's sort of circumstantial evidence and it's, it's it, you know, we don't have the data that the platforms are the only ones that really have the data that can, you know, shed more light on, you know, why did this start happening? You know, what were the mechanisms? Okay, well, I, I want to just slightly shift now because we've talked about kind of social pathologies and you've spoken specifically about the kind of social media's threat to democracy. And 
I mean, obviously this works through the kind of process, as you said, of the amplification and the echo chamber leading to kind of hyperpolarization. Um, and definitely, I think that it's, there's more than just circumstantial evidence to support that this is, this is definitely contributing to this hyperpolarization and information kind of, um, uh, what's the best way to put it, in, in, information uh, asymmetry, let's say. Um, but is there something else going on as well? I, w I wondered if you thought this. Now, let me tell you a couple of things I've been thinking about and just see, I'd love to see your reaction to them. You know that Steve Bannon, um, in a fa really famous quote, said he was talking about uh, Republican prospects. And he said, Democrats don't matter. The real opposition is the media. And the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with shit. So that's a direct quote. I'm sorry for the bad language. Um, the, high, the idea here was that if you can flood people with hundreds of different stories and lies, um, none of them will stick. It will, the, whole, the whole area will be so flooded that um, no one could go through all of them. To, and what happens is it creates cynicism about what, the, what, what is knowable and not knowable. Um, and therefore, everything becomes a matter of choice, which story you believe. And even there, even the ones you believe, you don't really believe because nothing's really true. And this, this creates all kinds of space for action. And it, and it just reminded me kind of, if you put Bannon on one side and, and maybe <laughs> I was thinking about Brandeis on the others, the kind of counter speech doctrine. And, and for those of you not familiar with it, the counter speech doctrine essentially says, you know, the, the way to fight um, really bad ideas is not to censor them. The, the way to fight really bad ideas is to bring them to light and, and, and the more they're brought to light, the more people will see the fallacy and kind of stupidity of the positions. But what seems to happen, and something's going on here, that it seems to happen, that doesn't seem to hold anymore for social media kind of platforms. That, that bad speech doesn't kind of die in the brightness of exposure. It just seems to as in your words, amp amplify, but it seems to kind of replicate. And it just seems like something's more that more is happening here than just pure amplification. And I, I, I'm, as you can tell, I'm not very articulate at, at thinking about no, this. But no, that's a, it's a great observation. And there is a lot more that's happening, right? So we can't just blame platforms and algorithms for this, right? Some of, we've got to take some of the blame ourselves. Um, yeah, there's, uh, and just about our own tendencies, right? So, and, and so I, I want to bring that up as well. I mean, there's an interesting book I'm reading at the moment called Breaking the Social Media Prism, you know, where uh, the author, Chris Bale, you know, he describes these experiments where you actually, uh, you know, you've got this polarization and now you show people stuff from the other side and you expose, so you, you, you uh, expose, you know, uh, you know, Democrats to sort of, you know, Republican metric and vice versa. And guess what? He finds that they actually get even more polarized, you know, uh, and that, uh, you know, and now the question is like, why is that happening? Well, yeah. you know, and, you know, he's got some interesting hypotheses, which is that, um, and, and by the way, this, the studies he's talking about were field studies. So they actually like talk to people, you know, in, in detail. Um, and one of the things he, he, he talks about is that, you know, maybe, you know, when push comes to shove, people feel like they've got to sort of toe the party line, right? So that even though some Democrats, you know, he talks about 
you know, some Democrats who actually felt that Trump had done some good things for the economy and, and a few other things. So, so Trump wasn't all bad. But when it sort of, you know, over time, he found that the positions shifted. Trump became all bad. Right. Right. And, yeah. and I certainly see this with my friends as well. I don't know whether this is true for you, but, you know, most of my friends sort of, you know, a liberal. And if you bring up anything about Trump, it, it's just it's just a non-starter to the conversation. Yeah. The conversation just ends right there. They don't want to hear anything about it. Um, you know, and, and, and Chris actually talks about, um, you know, Thanksgiving dinners that involved you know, both sides, you know, people who are Republicans and Democrats coming together. And on average, they tend to be 50 or 60 minutes shorter, uh, you know, than the ones <laughs> that don't have this, right? So, you know, it, it's, so it, it's become this kind of matter of principle that there's no way Trump could do anything good. He's just such an obnoxious person, um, right? That, that, that to some extent, I think, you know, he's actually, um, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, amplified this, uh, you know, you know, to use the word, you know, this sort of polarization as well, that he yeah. sort of maybe made us more polarized as well. So, so to some extent, it's us, it's the actors, it's the culture, it's not just the algorithms, but the algorithms just benefit from this anyway, right? So you, you started with Steve Bannon, you know, let's flood the zone with, the zone with shit. Well, Algos don't mind that, you know, as long as it increases attention, you can keep flooding the zone with shit. That's, that's all, that's all good. So to some extent, they don't really care. They're just obnoxious. They're agnostic as to you know what you flood the zone with, as long as it increases engagement. Yeah, which gets me to something else I've mentioned, which is that I think it's you know even though platforms should moderate content, I think in the long run that's sort of a it's a losing proposition in terms of creating sort of civic dialogue. You know, I I, I don't think that's you know, workable to moderate every piece of content because you're going to make mistakes. You know, if humans get into it, their own biases will come into it. You know, algorithms will make mistakes, but there's no, there's no appeal. You know, I know people, let's say, who get kicked off of Instagram and they can't appeal. They keep appealing and they just get these blanket messages, which, by the way, is another one of those rules that we forgot to define is, you know, platforms make mistakes. Will there be an appeals process? Guess what? We forgot to ask that question. Right? A few years ago, there was this woman who went outside Google headquarters and shot a bunch of people before she was killed. And, and the reason she did this is because, you know, she was selling, you know, uh, Middle East dance videos that algorithms then started sort of, you know, downrating and she lost all the business and she tried to appeal to Facebook. There's no appeal. And when, you know, when was the last time you tried to call Facebook? Uh, I mean, Google, I'm sorry. Um, you know, Facebook's probably similar, right? I mean, they, they don't yeah. have like, uh, this capacity to deal with people calling them and saying, hey, you know, you did me wrong. They just don't care. To them, that's collateral damage, right? So they can be damaging a lot of lives and just sort of say, well, you know, I'm sorry, this just happens. Uh, and it's a consequence of algorithms. But is that fair to people whose lives get destroyed? Like, shouldn't there be a process of appeals, right? So that's another sort of one of those rules that, uh, that you know, should have been defined up front is you know, things like, well, do you have an appeals process if you make mistakes? You know, that may have caused them to make different governance choices as well. Because for the longest time, these platforms just said, look, we operate algorithmically, right? There's no way we can moderate every piece of content. And then they started saying, well, you know, that's not going to work. And Facebook employed you know, third-party verifiers, you know, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But it's all been sort of knee-jerk, again, because we forgot to find the rules. Um, 
I went off on a bit of a tangent here. No, There's something just... else uh, I wanted to say that's sort of completely uh, gone out of my head. Uh, maybe I'll come back to it. But um, no, I was. Yeah. I, let me let me pick up on some. You, you know, one of the depressing findings that have come out of uh, social science recently, and uh, I'll have to. Uh, I'll look it up and, and put it in the show notes because I can't remember the author right now, but they were looking at education level and the effect of exposure to counter arguments to your a priori position. So um, is it the fact that, you know, the, the smart, the, the more, uh, the more kind of education you have at a very naive sense, you say, okay, if, if somebody has a lot of education and they're presented with strong counterfactuals to their own position, they should modul modulate the position, right? They should moderate what they believe if they're shown counter evidence. And what they found was that the more educated you are, uh, the less impact any new information counter to your previous position has. Because essentially the more educated you are, the more able you are to discount counter information to your previously held position. And so it, it makes no difference in polarized, highly educated people. It just simply polarizes them more by exposing them to counterfactuals, which I think is a, a de depressing finding. It, it is a depressing finding. In fact, it's sort of consistent with what uh, I said earlier, which is that you know when you expose people to the opposite views, and I didn't take education level into account, so I'm making this sort of more general statement, it doesn't actually convince you, if anything, it polarizes even further. And the question is, why does it do that? And we don't really have good answers to that. But you know, one of the hypotheses is because you realize that, look, push comes to shove, I've got to toe the party line, right? And so yeah. you you sort of go all in, in, in one direction, and that makes you even more polarized. Yeah, yeah I, so either, either the party line, or, or you already have count, you know, you say, yes, but what was your uh, research method? Or I don't under, you know, you, your control wasn't strong enough, or you can pick holes in the methodology of the counter, the, the more the more educated you are, you can see that. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. The oh, other thing yes, I, I, I just remembered what I was going to say, uh, that the, the, the point that I wanted to address, which is that, you know, I think I mentioned at some point that you're better off moderating accounts as opposed to posts. You know, yeah. that, 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 you know, and this gets into KYC, which also, you know, social media platforms didn't have for a long time. Now they do, it's still relatively light, right? But KYC is something I proposed five years ago, again, similar to financial services, because uh, social media platforms didn't have any incentive to uh, know their customers. In fact, it was just the opposite, right? That, uh, you know, the more the anonymity, the more the chaos and, and engagement and enragement and all of that. So it actually worked to their advantage to have, you know, the zone flooded with crap, to have, you know, yeah. you know uh, not genuine users, et cetera. And, and again, this is sort of in line with my credible threat hypothesis, which is that, you know, if you're one of these, and by the way, if you're a bad actor at the moment, you can just resurface somewhere else, sort of whack-a-mole, right? So yeah. what I was proposing is, a better solution to that problem, which is, you know, you, you better authenticate yourself, you know, before you start posting stuff on social media. Again, I think, you know, that might be sort of some, but that might lead to some sort of self-moderation. And if you're just incapable of it, then the platform should tell you that, look, you know, like we're giving you some warnings here. That, yeah, that, yeah. This is, that this is, there's a certain kind of conduct that we expect on this platform that you're violating. And you know, this is a private club, right? This is not a public uh, 
sphere exactly, even though they've sort of become public goods. But there's a certain kind of conduct that we expect on the platform. Um, but they didn't do that either. You know, I mean, I, I think Trump was the first president who started using social media in the way that he did, right? It just seemed undignified. You know, it just seemed like, you know, that was not the way to use social media, but the platforms are fine with it because it was creating more engagement. As long as that was happening, they were fine with it until such time as it wasn't. And then they just sort of kicked him off the platform, yeah. which I thought was absurd, right? It was just a, personally, I thought that was just an arbitrary choice and it was sort of more grandstanding than anything else. Uh, you know, and then they sort of let him back on, right? Well, and, and as it, you say- It's like trying to, yeah. No, I was just going to say, as you say, it wouldn't matter if they were small, but it gets to a certain scale. And given the scale, exactly. then those those decisions about who gets to have access to that kind of marketplace of ideas or communication path or whatever it is, that becomes hugely uh, kind of uh, consequential politically. And do we want the CEOs making these decisions? Yeah, Right, right. Because they're essentially operating the public square now you know even though they're private companies they've turned into sort of you know public goods de facto but they're still acting uh you know like private companies and making these governance choices that are somewhat arbitrary so that's a bit of a problem yeah right? and i started so, by saying it's a problem when you leave the um, you know a public square and private hands yeah so it's 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 a great point because i i want to be respectful of your time we're running out it's it's gone so fast so it's it's always a good sign <laughs> so let's look uh i'm gonna I, I i love that the fact that you have um put forward some very concrete uh propositions that you think you know could could lead us to a better place not a perfect place but a better place and, I, and i'm going to call this the dar doctrine um and and the first you you've already talked about it that that platforms should moderate accounts and not posts. And as I understand this, it would be something like, look, if you want to be known as, you know, Jack Hammer 24, that's fine. You can be, you can remain anonymous, but mm -hmm. we'll know who you are. Exactly. And and they yeah. have to kind of like verify who you are, like like a, like a bank account. Is that right? Bank, exactly. A driver's license, some national ID, right? We know who you are. Okay. And you've got so, to be above 18 and whatever. Yeah. And if you're not, then... You know, you're you're exposed to a different part of the platform that's for kids and that's moderated and et cetera. Exactly. And part of that would be that deterrent threat because I can't hide exactly. behind complete anonymity. And the platform can come to me and say, "We don't want you on this platform anymore because you've been doing these things." Exactly. Yeah. You you've surfaced ten times under different identities and enough of this. Okay. So one, moderate the platform. Uh, sorry, moderate the accounts, not the posts. The second is demand a transparency uh, of the algorithms used and their consequences. And we've talked about this a little bit. I think probably your your emphasis on the consequences, not necessarily looking at the guts of the algorithm, but you're particularly concerned that without this, we can't study the impact and the creation of what you call these dense networks. And can you say a little bit about what this dense network idea is? Well, it's you know it's uh, it's what I was talking about earlier. That is that the the algorithms actually create the social graph, and they, they create the social network. Um, and so, what I'm arguing for is some sort of transparency around the data that's creating these social networks. Um, and so, you know, the way I see it is, uh, you know, maybe the regulators have an API, right, that they can actually suck data out as long as it pertains to something that's been defined by the rules, such as social harm. And in this case, they want to 
you know, there's circumstantial evidence mounting that there's a certain kind of harm or a risk to society, and they're able to actually formulate a hypothesis, um, you know, and, and formulate an experiment that will answer that question for which gotcha. data is needed, right? Some of that data may be available from the outside. You may be able to get data on hospital admissions and suicides and et cetera, right? So there's a lot of that data being recorded, but the problem at the moment is that we can't relate that data to actually what's coming out of these platforms, right? So at, at, at the moment we're guessing, we're looking at circumstantial evidence, um, and, and, and obviously there's no smoking gun. It, it's yeah. impossible to have that. Well, and that comes to the third one, I think, because it ties those first two. So if you know who is who, and you know the algorithm and how it works and how it creates dense networks, et cetera, et cetera. And then your third step, step is that you require them to keep an audit trail. So who contacted who, when, by what content, et cetera, et cetera. Then I was just wondering, do you think then we could get to the point where we could say, look, we have some smoking guns here? So, I mean, in theory, then you can say, you know, like, uh, you know, look at the density of this network and the volume of messages across it. And let's look at mental health in areas where, you know, this was happening, right? Did this contribute to a deterioration in mental health or, you know, you know, teen depression or suicide, the kinds of data that you know, Jonathan Haidt's been collecting. Yeah. Right? Can we actually then start, uh, you know, correlating these and, and getting at some sort of causation, right? So at the moment, we have some sort of correlation, circumstantial evidence, but there's no causation, right? Through these experiments and data, we can actually start getting the causation, right? Is this actually, is there sufficient evidence to suggest that, you know, A is causing B, which, you know, which gets to your earlier point, which is how do you really prove social harm? It's extremely difficult yeah. uh, without the data. Well, and here, and, and up to this point, you know, when I was reading your, your stuff, I was like, yeah, I'm all in, I'm, I'm bought, you've got me, I'm go, I'm a green light here. And then I got to this point and it just made me pause for a second because these, these organizations already have vast data on us. And if they have an audit trail, I just wonder, then they know who we've talked to, what the content we've talked to, to whom, and when they know who we are. And I just wonder with all of that, are we, if, when would they be required, for example, to share that with the state? So if the state says, I'm really worried about Matt, I think that he has some dangerous ideas, and they go to social platform A and say, we'd like your uh, audit trail on Matt's social data, all of his interactions in the last two years, who he talked to, what was the message, how, how it was part of, a, of the network, Given that the data would have to be there in order to go through these three steps, are we in a situation where, God, if that if that data was available to some non-beneficent power, this would be very dangerous? Yeah, that's a great question, and and it it comes back to what the rules are and and what you're looking for, right? Maybe we want to define the rules so that you cannot get at individual level data, right? So we, we need some sort of constraints around this, right? Because you can't have regulators having sort of unfettered access where they just sort of go exploring, right? That just seems unreasonable as well, right? So we need to define what these rules are. What do we really care about, right? And, and can we get agreement about the kinds of things we care about that doesn't lead to other kinds of problems? Right? Yeah. But, but we haven't had this conversation yet. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's got to be the first step. I mean, as you as you said, there's no, I could I could do something as a social platform that clearly led to massive social ills, and I would be legally completely free. Exactly, and and, and I think if we think long enough, actually not that long, we can we can conjure up some scenarios under which we could say, look, I mean, it's totally reasonable that you know you've got massive evidence that there's some sort of social harm being caused that we should be able to get to the bottom of this because otherwise you know it might lead to worse outcomes in the future um but we haven't defined those yet okay well and, and that seems a completely reasonable first step so before i get you out of here i have two more questions for you one i'm going to take advantage of talking to again one of the smartest people i know and been thinking about ai more generally um, and and in and in social platforms, particularly our conversation today. But one of the things about these algorithms in, in on social platforms and in general is they're they're rewarded or they're uh, the, one of the things that they're trying to be able to do is predict what we're going to find in this case attention grabbing, but it might be what we're going to uh, find attractive to buy, what we're going to be attractive to look at, to read, etc. And I think. I just have this worry, and as as a, and as an expert in this area, I, I wonder what you think about it. The, the, the worry is as follows: the more sophisticated the AI gets, the more data that's collected on me and my desires and wants and fears, et cetera, the more it starts to be able to predict my future better behavior better than me. It can start to predict what I'm going to like, what I'm not going to like, what I'm going to want, what I'm not going to want, what's going to make me happy better than I can ever predict as, as an un-AI aided self. And so I meet somebody and they say, yeah, you might think you like Vassant, but actually we don't think that in a year you're going to like each other. Or we, <laughs> we uh, you know, this, this seems like somebody you'd like to uh, go out on a date with, but we, Matt, you know, this is going to end in disaster. Don't do it. And, and at a certain point, those predictions are going to be much better at predicting what actually the future is going to be than I am going to be without being aided. And it, first of all, does it make sense that, is that a legitimate fear? And if we get to that point, what happens to ourselves as far as kind of a, 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 an individual with kind of free will in a sense? Right, right. What happens to agency? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I guess in one of a few ways that's either, uh, you know, could be either positive or negative. So one of the ways I could take it is that, you know, is that the same thing as say walking around with a friend who can see three times further than you can, right? Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that they're, they're and, and your friend is actually now your, let's say your avatar, okay, for, for lack of a, yeah, uh, better terms. So now we walk around with our avatars who can predict us, you know, better than we can predict ourselves. And, um, you know, is that good or bad, right? Now you've got this avatar who's like advising you, look, look, Matt, you know, don't do that, that, you know, I, I, I predict that's going to end badly, right? And then you sort of engage in the dialogue with your avatar to really understand whether this time around, maybe the avatar is... Uh, you know, mistaken, maybe there's more nuance, right? I mean, that'd be kind of a very cool uh, scenario, right? Where you're sort of walking around with your twin, uh, twin self who's smarter than you in some ways 
and who engages in the dialogue with you, right? You still have agency, but this thing's like, you know, you know, can predict. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, maybe that would be a good thing. But on the other hand, I can see it being completely dystopian as well, where you just completely lose agency because the agent's been right all the time. You know, all the, the time. avatar has been right. You know, like 99 times out of 100, the avatar has been right. So why would it be wrong this time? Why would it be and wrong? So you, yeah. yeah, indeed. So you would just follow it. Um, by the way, and while we're talking about avatars, right, I will make a, a bold prediction here. Okay. Great. And uh, which might seem completely outrageous, but I think that in the future, we will deal with each other increasingly through our avatars, as opposed to our real physical selves, right? That's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself out on a limb by saying this, but, you know, as I just think about this brave new world we're entering and the metaverse, and the headspace is completely different from the headspace of, let's say, my generation or the generation of lawmakers, which is an even older generation, right? So, yeah. and that's part of the problem here, right? That you have lawmakers, like, who've grown up without technology, trying to understand people in the world that they've grown up with, you know, this technology around them. They don't know an alternative reality, right? I mean, I started my education going to you know, school in a horse-drawn cart, you know, uh, very low tech, right? So I've actually seen the, the range of like zero tech, you know, to very high tech in my lifetime. Yeah. And at least I can compare the two and say, you know, what was good about that? That What was good about this? There's a whole generation of people that are growing up with the internet, that, that, that this is the reality uh, that they're growing up with. And, um, you know, this notion of an avatar, which, by the way, is a Hindi word, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. Means, it means a form. It's, it's interesting how it's sort of become uh, used, um, you know, in, in this uh, sort of emerging Internet and, you know, metaverse and, and all of that. But, uh, but, you know, but the reason I say this is because I think avatars will allow us to project, quote unquote, a better version of ourselves than our physical selves can, right? We can actually experiment with avatars and say, hey, you know, like what seems to appeal to, you know, I'm a, I'm a Republican, but how can I appeal to Democrats through my avatar? Because my physical self sure ain't doing it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you but, know, doing the reverse, right? So uh, so I suspect that, you know, and I, and I see this happening already, right? That we're, we're sort of interacting more and more with the metaverse, with our avatars, you know, we, we we get dressed up, you know, by various people providing all kinds of stuff. So I think that's kind of the way we're heading, right? Where and that might actually be a good thing, uh, you know, yeah. where we can actually project sort of the better parts of ourselves, or it might turn out to be completely dystopian, right? Where we, uh, you know, where everything is, you know, the subterfuge involved, and you can never trust anything anymore. I, I hope that it's the bright. And I fear that it's the it's the it's the dystopia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I instantly go to okay. So we're interacting with our avatars, and my mat of avatar goes off into the uh, metaverse, um, and it does something really bad. Who's responsible for that? Right? Yeah, I think you are. I, I, th <laughs> I think you're. I, I think you're responsible for your avatar. But but you, if the avatar yeah. is semi-autonomous. And it's based on its reading of my of me. I don't know where my my legal, you know, 
I can say, I, I, it's not me, you know, and they can say, yes, it is you. It's based on your psychology. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. you uh, verbally assaulted this person. Yeah, you know, now, now we're really going into sort of the Asimov uh, world. You know, exactly, there's exactly. A, there's a court case going on and, the, you know, and the person says, look, I'm sorry, like, you know, like this avatar always did this, but I have no idea what happened here. Mistakes yeah. happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and a jury deliberates it and maybe the jury is consists of machines as yeah, well. No, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell you what. Uh, uh, one last question. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Let me just say, Vasan, first, thank you so much. But we always ask a final question. Just uh, what have you watched, read, listened to something over the past couple of years of the pandemic, which has helped you help help keep you sane? You know, what what if, what what can you recommend to our listeners? Something something for them to look at. It can be fiction, nonfiction, anything you like. Well, I mean, firstly, you're making an assumption that I've remained sane uh, through the <laughs> pandemic. I, I, I sometimes question that uh, premise. Um, but, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, I've really enjoyed reading the amount of reading I've done thanks to my podcast, you know, because it's really forced me. I mean, you know, I'm talking to people who are a lot smarter than myself who've written all kinds of really interesting stuff. So it sort of forced me to read a lot and, you know, open up my mind you know, so, so that's been a great thing. It's just reading all kinds of really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, one of my next guests who, who's coming on the pod, uh, you know, I'm reading some of the stuff uh, he's writing about maybe how our brains are actually, you know, wired for a certain kind of learning and that our genome is sort of, you know, uh, allows this kind of stuff. So really, really cool, far out stuff. So, all kinds of really interesting reading is something that's kept me quite busy. But uh, on the negative side, uh, well, negative in terms of time sync, I've just binged watched, you know, all kinds of uh, shows, uh, you know, that uh, would take way too long to mention here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's been a that's been a source of enjoyment as well. And uh I've got to commend, uh, you know, Netflix and all of these platforms for producing some amazing content and then addicting us to it. That uh, they tend to be very good at that. Yeah. Well, listen, yeah. that's a that's a that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, everybody listening, uh, brave new world. Uh, if you if you enjoyed the conversation here with Vasanta, I would say. Uh, you can find plenty more there. His list of list of guests is uh, absolutely. I'm I'm completely jealous uh, by the people you've had on, uh, but it, it makes me proud to have had Vasant on to on to Triumph Connects and and thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. <laughs>